journalists are going to be scared because we're coming up against authority. Ignore the scaredness and do your job. Welcome to JLab, a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. My name's Ian Wiley, and in this episode, our guest is a multi-award winning freelance journalist who has reported extensively on domestic abuse, child protection and the family courts. A 60-year-old Act of Parliament says that whatever happens in these courts must be kept secret. But in this dispatches, we go as far as the law will allow to expose what is really going on in these hidden courts. I had absolutely no idea. Last year, Louise Tickle's investigations for Channel 4's dispatches programme exposed cases of families traumatised by their encounters with family courts and judges who were hiding poor decisions behind secrecy rules. Earlier this year, Louise's reporting for BBC Panorama shared the troubling stories of families who felt failed by local authorities and social workers when their children were taken into care. Tonight on Panorama... Game is on! How social workers make life-changing decisions about children's lives. No, wrong way. And what can happen if things go wrong. And her recent podcasts for Tortoise Media have exposed how a former government minister abused the secrecy of the family courts in an attempt to hide the truth that he had abused and raped his wife. I began our conversation by asking Louise how she developed a journalistic interest in these areas. There are two sides to the work. I suppose for over a decade now, I've been reporting on domestic abuse. And that naturally segued into reporting on family courts and child protection because domestic abuse is a very major factor in why children are removed. Um, And so that was the progression and they are now almost inextricably intertwined in lots of ways. I've always focused my work on social affairs and education and in fact if I look back over the education work I've done it was never really about the teaching it was always about the conditions that made it possible for children to learn or not to learn and so essentially I've been a social affairs reporter for all of my journalistic life which has been the last 22 odd years since I retrained and I guess what happens is that you find areas that particularly compel you or particularly speak to you or that have complexities that you're fascinated by and if you allow yourself to go down those routes which always involves way more than just the reporting that you're doing but doesn't in the end feel like work because you are so fascinated by it then for me that was that was domestic abuse which sadly is the area that keeps on giving I never thought coming up eight years ago that I would you know my bedtime reading would be family court judgments on the website Bailey but all life is there and uh, and I do I do I do read you know multi-page many thousand word judgments late into the night because They are fascinating, not because I understand the intricacies of the law, but because what is being decided is so enormous for people's lives and the powers being exercised are so huge and and they happen effectively in secret. What set you on this particular path? If you track these things back, I think, well, I've found that they always start very small and um, my interest in... In, in, in family justice and in child protection and how, how local councils do or don't use their statutory powers to protect children well, which was the subject of one of the documentaries, and how family courts do or don't deal with domestic abuse well, which was a subject of the dispatches. 
I can track it back precisely to when one of my editors at The Guardian, who had commissioned a big piece from me, and I'd written it and filed it, and she said, there's a big hole in this. You're talking all about how it's impossible for domestic abuse victims to go and get protective injunctions because they're not mostly eligible for legal aid anymore, and you've not talked about you know you've not gone and seen it so off you off you trot (laughs) and so off I trotted to the Bristol family court where the judge was incredibly welcoming the judge in charge but where I discovered in a very pointed way that I was not going to be allowed to report on a woman or a man making an application for a non-molestation order or an occupation order to keep their abusive partner out of the house because you're not allowed to report on what goes on in family courts so I had to go back to my editor and say well we're going to have to make this piece work without it and then I was faced with the situation of right there are these courts where you can't say what's going on you can't report the detail of what's happened in this hearing whether it's fair whether it's unfair when the state is making decisions in child protection cases to remove or not to remove a child and it seemed extraordinary to me and that's how it started and of course you never progress on to doing massive stories straight away you're doing you're doing little stories you're building your contacts you're trying to get social workers to talk to you off the record you're getting little pieces of information and I started off just by doing news stories really when judgments were published that I thought were particularly remarkable and I tried to develop a specialism in my local area and in one sense I was lucky because my council Gloucestershire was in very big trouble with its children's services and and I knew before Ofsted reported that it almost certainly would fail and it failed very badly and then you can get bigger stories because you've built the trust with your editors and from that if you then sort of go all the way to kind of the TV documentaries it's building trust it's building credibility it's building a reason why editors would trust you when you come to them with an issue of concern And I had, in fact, worked as a sort of researcher with a a TV documentary company for some years before that. And I went to them with this idea and I said, I've got this particular access to a family court in London. And and in fact, the dispatches was commissioned based on that access. And then for various reasons that fell down. And so then you have to reshape it. But I would say it's a really incremental process and it takes years. You know, being... A freelancer, as I think I might have indicated at the beginning, there's got to be something to compensate for the lack of pay, the lack of security, the lack of holiday pay, the lack of sick pay. And I would say that something is the freedom to really explore the things you want to do. You know, of course, a staff journalist can do this as well, and, and many do. But I think as a freelance, you, you, you just have latitude. You don't have to account to anybody for your time. So if you want to spend a couple of days sat in court and you can afford to do it, which is kind of sometimes quite hard, you can do that, and that's wonderful. You don't have to justify it to anybody. If we jump forward, Louise, tell us what you discovered in each of those broadcasts. If I talk about dispatches first, because in chronological order, that was the first one, I was trying to discover how family courts dealt with allegations of domestic abuse. And in order to do that, I had to apply to family courts to be able to describe how they were dealing with it, because you don't, you don't have that right as of right. I think one of the shocking things that we showed on that film was that children are forcibly removed from parents by court order in a way that many people would question was truly in their best interest because the video that we got hold of, and this is after months of relationship building with many families, was really very traumatic to watch and we we only showed very short clips of it. Now, 
of course, what happens when you show something like that and dispatches as a particular style of programme and it, it wanted to really raise people's awareness and, and pinpoint something that was worthy of debate is that that there are we ha- and we had to explain that there can be reasons why a court orders the forced removal of a child from one parent to another but what you're always trying to do as a journalist is you're trying to hold something up and say i don't think you were aware of this that children can be literally physically removed despite and i had seen this before i'd seen plenty of plenty of this before in youtube videos because parents upload them onto facebook and other platforms what do we think of the reasons that the state gives for justifying this? Do we think they're good reasons? So what I'm wanting to do is not show a shock horror video. I'm wanting to say, I don't think we as a society realise that we sanction this. What do we think of the reasons for why we sanction it? So that was one of the things that we uncovered in the dispatches that most people that got in touch with me said they had no idea about. The thing that was that happened in the panorama, which was broadcast earlier this year is something that I in fact had known about for three years Um, and anybody could have found out about if in fact they you know had ploughed through lengthy judgments published by a particular high court judge which is that Herefordshire Council had failed so many children so appallingly and in so many variously dreadful ways that there are serious questions to be asked about whether that local authority was fit to do the job of protecting children or was it in fact harming some of the most vulnerable children. There had been small news stories about certain of the judgments at certain times but bringing all of that together and also going and speaking to people and getting permission from the High Court to have one woman speak in her own name with her own picture which would normally be completely banned about her recent experience and I think that's interesting because you're you're often faced by local authorities saying well that was a year ago or two years ago things have improved and we were able to show that actually no this is right now it's currently happening right this minute and we got a 13 year old boy to also speak about his experience of being taken into care by the council which had been chaotic and awful and traumatic for him. So you're trying to show people and bring to account public authorities that have done things which raise questions and which require them to answer. And what have we learned about the way family courts are run and also the way that social work departments are run or resourced? Well, some honesty would be helpful because public authorities tend to hate their failures being exposed and resist it to the nth degree using huge amounts of public money to go to court to stop you finding things out or to stop you publishing things that you have found out. I think it's important to say that these are not criminal courts. These are courts which are aiming to do the best for children who are in the most vulnerable position of any children in the country, whether that is children who are you know, in a child protection situation because of their family circumstances, or whether it's the children of separating parents who are in you know, sometimes very acrimonious and long-standing disputes. So the privacy of the children, and by extension, because identifying a parent will tend to identify a child, the privacy of the parents is really important. Where I object, and I think this is a really principled objection on the basis of open justice, is that the tool that the that statute has put in place to stop us identifying all of the stuff that 
we don't want people to know, is basically to say you can report nothing of the detail of anything that happens in a family court. You can give the general gist of, of the dispute, which might be that there are allegations of abuse or, or might not. You might not even you might even find that your publications lawyer wouldn't allow you to say that. You can't explain how a judge deals with allegations or with, with the whole process. You can't explain the failings that often, often come up in a court setting of a local authority in following due process and in following statutorily required processes, which were put in place for really good reasons, which was to protect so much of the integrity of people's family lives, of their human rights, and which often are breached willy-nilly with, with zero sanction for the state, which in this case is the local authority. And so although I absolutely do agree in most cases and would almost never seek to identify a child or a parent in a case like this, although, as we'll talk about, there, there are exceptions to that, I do really take issue with the fact that we shouldn't be able to hold to account some of the most draconian powers the state can exert which are exerted within the secret confines of family courts for me that's the you know the central thing that I take from this that if we don't as journalists fight expensively riskily taking you know many many days weeks and and it can be a very anxious time to be able to expose these things um, we are not allowed to and even in fighting sometimes we fail Do you find that your work has persuaded people that there needs to be change? The president of the family division, Sir Andrew McFarlane, undertook what ended up being a two-year review into transparency in the family courts and evidence was submitted by lots of people, including me, and he came out with actually a sterling piece of work last October saying there needs to be more transparency and it needs to happen urgently. There needs to be a culture change, there's got to be a clean, clean sweep, we've got to safeguard children's privacy, but we do need more accountability. And in the eight months since then, I understand there has been extensive scurrying behind the scenes, but we are in exactly the same position now as we were on the 29th of October last year. So I am somewhat losing faith that it can be done in that way by leaving it to judges. I have it diarised on my calendar two weeks before the 29th of October that if nothing has happened in that time, in that 12 months, that I'm then going to be writing comment pieces just going, this is an absolute failure. The other way, because the restrictions that we have to work under are created by statute, is to repeal um, the particular law, which is called Section 12 of the Administration of Justice Act, enacted in 1960. I campaign for that, and I am currently working on getting that. Would any of this happen without the work of journalists like you, Louise? No. Um, not because I want to put journalists on a pedestal, but because we can give issues visibility and a kind of compelling requirement for policymakers to look at a problem that, that nothing else provides. No number of consultative bodies or charities kind of talking to people behind the scenes, although there is one charity that I am a committee member of, the Transparency Project, which was set up by... Uh, a family law barrister who is incredible and who has in fact acted for me on several occasions, Lucy Reed. You need people to be making sophisticated, informed arguments and you need a way of forcing those arguments to the forefront of people's minds. And when it's a legal issue, you actually need 
a sophistication of understanding of the background so that you in fact don't do inadvertent damage to the cause which you can do as a journalist if you don't really understand and it's taken me years to learn and I have had a lot of help from a lot of people lawyers and judges in particular behind the scenes who who don't think that the system as it stands is right and I think that what I would say to students is yes you'll be scared I'm scared we're all scared put it to the side you have you just journalists are going to be scared because we're coming up against authority ignore the scaredness and do your job because your job is to challenge power and your job is to question it and the scaredness does dissipate to an extent but earlier this year I had to stand up in the high court in front of a high court judge and make my own submissions. I wasn't represented. I'd chosen not to be represented. The BBC had offered for the panorama that we could instruct counsel. But I actually think it's really important that journalists should do their best to make the public interest case for freedom of expression themselves. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. And I don't pretend I stood up and, you know, expanded without notes. I, the night before, I had written out my notes and I hadn't agonised about them. I had made an informed case and I tried to show the reasons for that. And what I have found is that although judges and courts can be really, can feel really scary, particularly if you're a journalist on your own, they are respectful. They invite you to make your points. They listen. I've had mostly success in getting at least some reporting restrictions removed on family law cases by often by being really sensible and reasonable and understanding what the sensitivities in a case might be so not publishing things that are particularly identifying except where sometimes you have to argue that they're editorially necessary where they're editorially not necessarily I will I will compromise in order to get a, as good a solution as I can but never never allow your fear to stop you from standing up and making your case. There's actually a, a barrister's phrase, which is fear no one. And I don't think that that's a bad way to go. I, although you can't say don't be scared because you will be scared, but you just have to push through it. And then if we flip across to the social work side of things, what needs to happen there, do you think? Well, it's so many things, isn't it? If you have had what have we had now, 12 years of austerity, swinging council cuts, social workers picking up, you know, the, the absolute desperate end point of people's inability to manage their family lives, which has been degraded by so many factors in society. I, it's not okay to blame social workers, and we didn't in the panorama. We, we, we very carefully, at the very beginning, we said... You know, are social workers being supported to make the best decisions for children? Because if you talk to social workers and understand the pressures they're under, and it's said so often, you know, the pressures they're under, but I've spoken to social workers who were given ludicrous numbers of cases, 35, 40 cases, that's children they're responsible for, utterly impossible to do a good job. As a journalist, how could I do a good job if I didn't have you know, our lawyers and my producer and our editors scrutinising every word of my script, we would come unstuck. And so social workers do. And so children are failed. There is, there is an issue to do with culture in social work. I have 
seeing documents where social workers have spoken really disrespectfully about families. I've read judgments where judges have been highly critical of social workers who have, you know, from avoided questioning to outright lying. I've attended a regulatory hearing of a social worker who was found by a judge to have fabricated evidence in court. I've seen that social workers who were found to have fabricated evidence and one of their managers who completely went along with that have been promoted to, in some cases, Director of Children's Services, despite mass media attention to a particular judge's judgment saying this. And so at that point, as a journalist, you start to feel like, what is the point? <laughs> if if the DFE knows that this social worker was found to have done those and they appoint her knowingly and there she is and how can how any judge can have confidence in that woman's evidence in the future, I simply do not know. But you have to keep plugging on. What, what have been some of the obstacles you've come up against, some of the roadblocks, some of the pressure maybe mm. you've been under? I'll talk about the Griffiths case now, which is something I did for Tortoise Media recently. So your listeners may remember Andrew Griffiths, who used to be an MP and a Minister of State in the last Conservative government. And he had to resign as an MP. Um, sorry, he had to resign as a minister. He refused to, re- to resign as an MP when he was found to have sent you know, thousands of what the Mirror described as depraved sexting messages to two young constituents. Um, what what wasn't understood then, and what we can only report now because of a year's worth of legal hearings that I and Brian Farmer from PA Media undertook, was that all the while he was an MP and a minister, he was abusing his wife, Kate Griffiths, and raping her. So those findings were made in a family court. I didn't attend, nor did Brian. We, I'll say this carefully, we came to understand that there were interesting findings that had been made in that family court case. And we asked the judge if we could, if if the judge would publish the judgment and the judge said no, because there are certain judgments that should be published. Um, The guidance is that they should be published and she said no. So then we had to think again and think, well, what do we do? So we applied to see the judgment privately as journalists who would have been entitled to be at that hearing had we known about it. And when we got that judgment, our jaws just basically hit the floor. I'll never forget reading it because it was so shocking so then you know you're going to have to fight really hard because Andrew Griffiths was not going to allow us to publish that judgment if he could possibly help it and at that point you have to think about what are my resources can I do this on my own we are we going to have to get a lawyer how long is it going to take what's it going to cost am I going to get a commission I wasn't commissioned initially Um, am I going to get commission based on the risk that I might never be able to publish this. Who will fund this litigation? Because I knew that at the very least, I was going to have to make really quite complex submissions as to why we should... This was a judgment that couldn't be published in the public interest without the names of the man, the woman, and the man and the woman being published, so Kate Griffiths and Andrew Griffiths, and by definition, that would mean that the name of their child, which had already been reported although we didn't report it in relation to this judgment and there's a reporting restriction order relating to that, but but would easily be, become known. And it was really hard. So then, then you're faced with, you go and try and persuade your editors. Your editors go and persuade their you know, high-ups. The high-ups have to sanction the money. The money's always more than you think. Then then will you win? And there's a, there's a huge amount of work that goes into an appearance in court that nobody will ever grasp. You know, I've 
you're in constant contact. And I find this very exciting. I love working with lawyers because lawyers think very creatively and interestingly and, and require you to interrogate your reasons for why you want to publish so that you've actually set them out very carefully in the public interest so that you are very precise and that's important in justifying why you want to publish something that is, you know, people would say, well, why? Why publish this? And you have to evidence it. And then you win and there's great euphoria and then you know, he appeals. And then you end up in the Court of Appeal, which is eight months before that, nine months before that, I never thought I was going to end up in the Court of Appeal. Then you have to go back and say, it's going to be more money. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a roller coaster. It's a proper roller coaster. And emotionally, I think you have to, what I've learned from reporting on family courts is you are scared of being in contempt of court. If you put a foot wrong, you're um, really anxious on behalf of the people whose stories you want to tell because they've invested hugely often in you being able to tell them. Although in this case, Kate Griffiths hadn't approached us and was actually quite shocked when she heard that we wanted to publish and it took her a while to understand the reasons why. And in the end, she was fully supportive. And and I've had so many sleepless nights, both through that, those kinds of, you know, the, the anxiety of getting it wrong and of doing things wrongly legally. And that incredible sense of responsibility you have to get this story out because it does really matter and people need to know. And it's it's a kind of sick, ugly feeling in the pit of your stomach when you wake up at night. And I didn't have it so much with Griffiths because I felt legally safe. Also, I felt very justified in, in, in the reasons why and, and because we got permission. But when you're doing it less formally, when you're standing up in court on your own, when the judge is making an oral order when you're wondering how far to go in your copy, I, it, it's really not fun. Did something like the Griffiths case actually stack up for you as a freelance? It, well, it did because I was supported by Tortoise um, and Tortoise have deeply, fundamentally committed to the work I'm doing against violence against women and girls and have been since I did an investigation coming up two years ago now into hidden domestic abuse homicides. I've been on a proper day rate but, you know, before that, no. Before that, I was massively subsidising the investigations I did. With, with the, the demise of so much local media, there is so little proper court reporting being done because it is an expert area. Although I encourage people to stand up and make their case, I don't think you can do that in an uninformed way. You do have to know parts of the law and you have to be really secure in it, even if you're not arguing you know in legally detailed ways when you're you need, you need to feel that you have the right to make the arguments when you stand up in court and there are not enough there's not enough opportunity for journalists to develop that expertise in real life I don't think now but if I think about family court reporting who is there there's me there's Brian Farmer who knows everything and is a wonderful man and has done so much for transparency and I admire him enormously there is Hannah Summers who has recently been reporting for The Observer and who has done incredible work over the last year. There's Melanie Newman, another freelance, Hannah's freelance, Melanie Newman, another freelance, who went right up to the Court of Appeal on a case that I think she should have won and she failed. And I don't think she was being paid for any of that. She got pro bono legal support, but there would have been thousands of hours and unreal amounts of anxiety involved in that case. And she fought it for over two years. I think that's it, really. 
um, who look at family courts and court of protection, which is where somebody doesn't have capacity and the court is taking decisions on their behalf. So there is the court of protection um, reporting project, which is run by Professor Celia Kitzinger and um, Jill Looms Quinn, both academics. Celia is retired and does it completely voluntarily. It's, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not enough. I mean, what do you say to people who think actually, you know, our, our, our courts are well run, the law, the law should be able to look after itself? Well, it can't. And it's been recognised for a thousand years that the can't, law can't look after itself. Any powers exerted by the state have to be scrutinised. And I think that the family court is a perfect example of the difficulties you run into when you do not have any outside independent scrutiny no matter how expert the people working in the courts or how committed, and the law is no different from any other area in that there are some people who are good at their jobs and some people who are bad and some who are biased and some who are excellent, really bad things can happen if you don't have outside scrutiny. Really bad things will happen if you do have outside scrutiny because you can't have outside scrutiny of every case, but you can start to look at the systemic difficulties if you do have that outside scrutiny, and there's simply not enough of it. And what it has resulted in in the family justice system is a, is a culture which is actively hostile to outside scrutiny, which is damaging in so many ways to the people. In fact, the courts are meant to protect children because it means that if you cannot scrutinise the poor decisions that are being made, then you cannot reach a place where better decisions are being made. Well, and just finally, Louise, what next? Uh, so I'm following up the domestic abuse stories with tortoise with a piece on suicides that are people who kill themselves in the context of a domestically abusive relationship which is you know many people are saying another kind of hidden homicide also for tortoise i'm doing a piece on a tower block in bristol from which a woman fell in the middle of a domestically abusive argument so i'm looking at life in that tower block I did a big piece of work with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism funded by the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust a year ago to support journalists when the hoped-for changes to transparency and more openness finally materialise in the family courts in what, what we're hoping will be two pilot areas. So the Bureau and I are, are funded to do that kind of underpinning supportive work. So I would say to people, if you are interested in reporting on the family justice system, which affects hundreds of thousands of people every year and which you never hear about until it affects you and your family, because we're not allowed to tell you, then keep a watch out for the Bureau's website where there's going to be a microsite uh, with lots of, I hope, useful materials on how to approach this difficult and often intimidating but really crucial area of court reporting. You've been listening to JLab a podcast brought to you by the Civic Journalism Lab at Newcastle University. My name's Ian Wiley. Thanks for tuning in.